Welcome to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise Podcast, the podcast for serious hockey players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their hockey careers. And now, here is your host, New England Hockey Journal's Kirk Ludicky. Welcome to the New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise Podcast. I am your host, Kirk Ludicky, back with you. And we've got a great show for you today with Cortex agent Kent Hughes. He is the director and he is an NHLPA certified agent. And we are thrilled to have him on board to talk about a lot of things, including the NCAA's NIL. I know a lot of you probably want to know what's going on with that. But before we get to Kent, I want to remind you to go to our website, HockeyJournal.com, where you can become a member, subscribe, get exclusive content. We have so much hockey to offer you at all levels. We also have our print magazine that you can have delivered to your door. Latest issue, September, October. Uh, It's on the street. Uh, We're excited to bring that to you. And we're moving ahead with other issues as well. We have our upcoming prep hockey preview, and uh, so much more that will be happening in November and December. So again, HockeyJournal.com. Subscribe to get exclusive content. And you know what? If you don't subscribe, you can still listen to the podcasts by going to Apple, Spotify, our website, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Download and give a listen. Uh, We're happy you could join us. And so now, let us go to my conversation with Kent Hughes. Kent, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So uh, just to get things started, uh, can you talk to us about your background, um, what, what you did as a player coming up, what, uh, what, what got you into the sport and developed your, lo- your lifelong uh, love for the game? Yeah, I think I was like a lot of young kids around here and uh, you know, certainly in Montreal where I grew up <clears throat> playing on the outdoor rinks and, you know, sharing a passion with a younger brother we had a a rink in our backyard for for a number of years as well and that that uh joy of of kind of playing unorganized uh hockey unstructured hockey in the backyard eventually translated to to more organized hockey growing up and uh, i played through my midget year in montreal at lac saint louis which is a pretty well-known midget program that that has Sent, you know, produced a lot of hockey players both to the NHL but also to to the college ranks out of Montreal and that's the path I followed going to eventually off to Middlebury College and then for a year in uh, playing professionally in Sweden before returning to the U.S. and going to law school. Yeah, so after you know, after getting that taste of pro hockey, um, how did you how did you decide that that becoming a player agent was something you? Uh, and you wanted to do and and who were some of the coaches or or the mentors on the advising side that 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 helped you to kind of point you in that direction i think for starters you know i played professional hockey let's qualify that i i didn't uh i, I wasn't uh going to play professional hockey with the uh, hopes of, of making a career of it i think it was more an opportunity to get to europe and live in a different country and and uh enjoy the game for another year and keep it uh you know let the uh, passion carry me one more year but i i went over there you know starting to think about what do i do next and, and hockey was such a, a passion of mine such a big part of, of my life it, it was really is there something that i could do to remain in the sport that didn't involve me wearing hockey skates and, and uh you know at the time my brother was uh you know the 22nd pick to the Quebec Nordiques I grew up playing with a lot of guys who went on to play in the NHL uh skated with a lot of them in the summertime so I had the opportunity to talk to them and ask questions about you know their agents and things like that you know I think I was kind of thinking one of two paths either the agency side or the coaching side and and ultimately I made the decision uh to follow the agent side and you know based on a lot of the questions and discussions I had with some of the pro players decided that, you know, probably the next step in that preparation was to go to law school. But I went to law school with the goal of becoming a sports agent, not per se becoming a tax attorney or a corporate lawyer. Okay. Yeah. That, and, and, and so how did that, 
So, so once you you got your degree, what what how were you able to to get that that open door or open the door for yourself to to get into the the business side of hockey as an advisor? Yeah, that's that's a. Uh, <clears throat> I get a lot of a lot. I speak to a lot of young. Uh, aspiring agents or people looking to get into the sports industry and and often that's a question that's asked I I, I was quite fortunate I was going to law school in New York and I had a friend that I went to Middlebury with whose brother was a lawyer in a firm in the Boston area at the time Mahoney Hawks and Goldings and they had uh, I'll say Marvin Hagler was a client of theirs probably more kind of from a legal perspective but there was a lawyer at the firm by the name of Jay Fee and Jay wasn't didn't necessarily have much of a hockey background, but uh, based on some work he was doing with some people, ended up representing Cam Neely and doing some work with Larry Kelly, who was a pretty established agent with some of his clients, uh, and ultimately ended up with Grant Fear. So, you know, he ended up as a lawyer in a Boston law firm with two Hall of Fame clients, and and my friend had said, you know, geez, maybe we should put the two of you in contact and. That led to me transferring to Boston College and and basically, you know, going to school and and spending the majority of my off time in downtown Boston working. Wow, that's fat, and you definitely brought up some names there: Jay Fee, Cam Neely, Grant Fuhrer, and Larry Kelly. He's a gentleman, so um, that's great. Uh, so so as you got into the business and 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 that was you know around the time that the NHL was really transitioning and and for many years the 21 team era of the NHL what what was notable about hockey players is they were among the lowest paid of all the professional sports athletes just from your perspective of observing it and then being involved in the business what do you what do you think are some of the the key factors that help implement change to, to where we are now, where, you know, the, the hockey players are, are able to make, you know, especially in the NHL are able to really um, make it, make a really good living doing that compared to, to the earlier years that um, that wasn't always the case. Well, I think there's been, you know, a number of changes uh, across all sports in terms of the business of sports and, and, and in terms of how aggressive clubs and leagues have become in terms of, identifying and generating new revenue streams certainly in hockey we also saw the kind of arrival of new buildings with new you know bigger suites and and much more kind of opportunity for fan interaction and 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 greater number you know fans to be able to accommodate a greater number of fans at the game so you know the rink the rinks are, are a critical piece of it certainly in hockey because of because it's a, a gate driven business to a larger degree than the other sports but i also think you know if we think back geez remember we had fox covering hockey and we had a puck tracker so every time a puck got passed um you know you had this like blue highlighted uh screen that was tracking the puck and i don't think it made for great television production and it, it was hard to go and attract a a non-hockey fan to a game so i think the the television product certainly has improved dramatically uh the league expanded you know south and southwest into a lot of markets that weren't traditional hockey markets and and not only did that create new markets but but ultimately we we've seen in a lot of these markets youth programs pop up and, and evolve and and that you know, continues to grow the fan base, I think, in, in the sport of hockey. And, and then more recently here over the last 15 years, there's probably been a real change in, in the style of play that's promoted more speed and skill, uh, which is a more, it was certainly, in my opinion, a more entertaining brand for the casual consumer of the sport. Yeah, I mean, talking to those youth programs, like you, you look at like a, a Florida Alliance, you know, for example, they're they're a program that's producing a lot of higher end junior players who are heading, you know, heading to to D one, and you know the Dallas Stars Elite, and mm-hmm. you, know, to, you know, pro, and even the Nashville Junior Predators. I mean, you're you're seeing that's exactly right. These these NHL expansion uh, operations have created these youth programs that just has broadened the talent pool considerably. No question. 
So uh, any thoughts as to you know where you might think it, it, it could go from here? I mean, we, we just had Seattle expand. Um, the league is flush with those fees. And I imagine if, if the Kraken are able to, to, to be a competitive operation, much the likes of, of, of the Vegas Golden Knights in 2017, I would think the NHL would probably be looking to expand even more. Do you, do you, do you think there's room for more growth in the, in the league? Yeah, potentially. I think it really comes down to being able to identify markets that that can sustain a national hockey league team from a business perspective, have enough of a base, ideally enough uh, confidence that if it's not a hockey market, they can make it a hockey market. But I also think, given the global nature of the sport, there you know, there's always underlying conversations about is there an expansion to Europe and to this point in time that that it, the, the league has resisted that movement but there's some awfully big markets in Europe that could certainly uh, support a national hockey league team so I, I would think that's something that will always be out there uh, as a possibility would the logistics <clears throat> is, is, is do you think the re- resistance comes from logistics and the time zone differences and the in the in the different things that would 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 be obvious obstacles to integrating a european team or is there is there more to that yeah i think those are are certainly the uh, kind of frontline obstacles that probably have have prevented the league from doing anything to to this point in time okay well much of our readership and listening audience are players and, and parents who are trying to figure out how to keep playing hockey as long as they can uh, with your experience as an agent, uh, an advisor, uh, and, and your coaching background and, and the involvement you've had in hockey at so many levels over the years, what are some of the things you would offer them that might help them to you know, develop a t- plan uh, to achieve their own goals and objectives? Well, I guess that, that depends to a degree on what age level of, of hockey player we're talking about. But you know, there's certainly certain things that I've seen uh, – both as a coach, as an advisor, uh, even to a degree as an agent that, you know, stand out to me. One, I think young hockey players shouldn't be afraid to dream, to dream big. Uh, But they can't, you know, my experience with so many of these these young hockey players is they dream big yet because everything's so public today with social media and everything else, there's also this reluctance – to dream big because of fear of failure. And and I think it's important for players to be able to go out and you know embrace that challenge without fear of failing. It's okay to fail. It's likely you're going to fail if your dream is to play pro hockey. Uh, because the odds say that. That doesn't mean you should you should be afraid of chasing that dream enjoying the the ride is critical too it can't be a you know an, a zero-sum game it, it's it's got to be something that you're enjoying the process not just trying to get to the end result yeah. uh, i think secondly as you move through the ranks it's, it's important to understand what sport is at the you know even at the division one level and it, it is a mental hurt like it's mental olympics it's very challenging and you have to be prepared for what's involved uh train yourself to to handle adversity and i I think you know in this generation we're probably don't do a great job of that at the very young levels and and as a result some of these players are get spit out into kind of the business side of hockey, which I would say starts in college or even earlier, excuse me, in juniors and, and they're not prepared for it. Yeah. Interesting. So there's certainly two things. And then I think, you know, ultimately if you want to, uh, if you want to do it, be mindful. I feel like there's so much of the keeping up with the Joneses in the hockey world. And there's no one path. There's no, you know, singular time frame that everybody has to be on uh, to get there. And, and a little bit of patience and confidence would certainly remove a lot of the stress that players and families feel. 
Do you have any thoughts on the specialization of hockey? Do you encourage your athletes to to play other sports, or what, what is your kind of perspective on the focus becoming more and more on playing hockey year-round and, and being hockey players versus maybe uh, multifaceted athletes? Well, I think by the time we're, we get involved, certainly from a business perspective with these players, they're, they're you know, you're kind of at that age where you're starting to specialize anyways. I feel like it's it's almost difficult not to. Like if you're going off to play junior hockey, you're – you don't have a choice. Absolutely. The scheduling doesn't permit you to play multiple sports. But if I were thinking about it from a pure development perspective, I feel like at the, at the youth levels, we've become so much about skill and speed and skating, uh, not enough about kind of understanding and processing the game. And I, I, other sports would certainly provide that perspective. We were actually, I was having a beer with with marty st louis and a couple of other hockey people after the northeastern game on saturday night it's very thing we were talking about like understanding space and putting putting plays to areas like soccer would be a tremendous benefit to an athlete in that regard and basketball could be a tremendous benefit for for some of the principles of basketball that would be transferable to hockey and then one of the guys that i work with and have for you know, almost three decades now as a younger uh, son involved in hockey and he came across Mark Savard and he just said to me last night, he said, Mark said today when a kid makes a smart play, we talk about him having incredible hockey sense. And 20 years ago, we would have just thought that was a nice play. Right. Huh? True. Right. now, absolutely. And, and that, that is the, you know that is the kind of maybe the, the reflection of the the information, the accessible information, and the maybe paralysis by analysis that we find ourselves in, where you have the ability to cut video and look at things closely and just break it down to the to the nth degree. Yeah, I I actually think that that is a side for young hockey players that they have to think more about, which is just like watching the sport, understanding the sport. Uh, you know, hockey is a game of read and react at a very, very fast pace, and you run offense to defense in a in a split second. So, trying to understand the game instead of just play the game would take them a long way. Yeah, and video certainly would help with that. Certainly. So, I mean, on that note, hockey hockey players are at the highest level. Patrice Bergeron, Taylor Hall, Chris Letang. Mitch Marner, Darnell Nurse, those are just a few of the many NHL clients your agency represents. And so I would ask you from 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 being around them and working with them and seeing them, what are some of the key attributes that you you know and see in them that have allowed them to, you know, along with the rest of your stable at Cortex, rise to the top of the profession and and find stardom at the highest level of the sport? If I, if I were thinking about qualities that they share. There's a competitiveness, no question, that you see in, in elite athletes, uh, certainly in this group of players. Uh, competitiveness to be, to win, I guess, because you function within a group. Competitiveness to be the best that they can be. Uh, probably an, an understanding of what's involved in that, too, in terms of the discipline to do what they need to do to prepare themselves, uh, both off season day-to-day in season uh and then again kind of back to what i talked about with even at the division one level or of all sports uh, and below it is just dealing with having the mental aptitude and strength to deal with the pressures and the ups and downs of sport right that competitiveness i think is you know when you talk to to people just involved in any game that's that's really what it comes down to because competitiveness isn't necessarily just you know compete on the puck or you know going hard to the net it's that competitive drive off the ice to hit the weight room and work as hard as you can or spend a lot of your time watching film on successful you know just looking at what you're doing and finding ways to to, to be more competitive to get the edge because that's really what it comes down to right and so I think sometimes players and parents might might 
forget that aspect and how important it is that you have to be wired and driven to to improve yourself and it's not just about working when you get to the rink 1000 percent. and i actually think my wife often teases me that uh women are much more capable of multitasking and and i think about it in in relation to sports and i think it's in, in many aspects of life, it might be a detriment to be too singularly focused, but I think in relation to professional sports, it's a prerequisite. I think it's really hard to be an elite athlete if you're not singularly focused on, on the task at hand. Yeah. So speaking of an elite athlete, very just a, a name that's near and dear to everyone's heart here in the region. He's in your agency. I'm, I, I mention him, but... We can't we can't go through this podcast without trying to peel back the onion a little bit on on Patrice Bergeron and people might you know some people might look at it because he's been in the NHL since he was eighteen and they might think well you know he always just kind of had this and just did this and 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 becoming an NHL star and a future Hall of Famer was was assured because he did it so young but they might not realize that you know when he was drafted in the in the Quebec league he didn't make that league as a 16 year old he had to play midget hockey for a year and then he went to Bathurst and that's what turned into being a second round pick and then NHL at 18 and he and then everything that that has followed but just uh based on what you know about him um what what how was he able to overcome some early obstacles to become what he is today and that's a champion and and a, and a future hall of famer more than anything else, I, I, he is probably as mentally equipped for professional sports as, I forget about hockey, I, I would think he's a top 1% of athletes in that regard. And, and it isn't something that he turned on when he arrived at pro sports. He, he took that with him. He... he wasn't worried so he played midget hockey in Quebec and he had two players on his team I believe go number one and three overall in the Quebec League draft that year and I believe he was a fifth round pick he actually chose uh, or his mother uh, and and parents made the decision that he probably was best to return to midget hockey that he wasn't ready for that Uh, again you know kind of back to, to my comment earlier about not worrying about keeping up with the Joneses. It's, it's, you know, he had his path and they, they were capable of understanding who their son was, or he was capable of understanding it and saying, this is the right next step for me and my development. And I'm not worried about what everybody else is doing. And I'm not worried that if I don't do this, then I can't get there. You know, you, we advanced two years from the Quebec league draft and, and, those two players were first round picks in the NHL, uh, but the gap had, had clearly shrunk and, and Patrice was a second round pick. And, you know, he came to, uh, to camp and, and was probably as ready as anybody for an 18 year old kid. But again, he knew what he needed for himself to be successful. Like he, he lived with, Marty LaPointe and his family that first year, Marty was very gracious and, and brought him in. And I think Patrice will always be thankful to, to Marty and his family for that. But I can remember speaking to, to Marty's wife. I mean, I knew them from growing up in Montreal. I would play with Marty in the summer, but my brother and he were teammates in midget hockey. And I remember his wife saying to me once at a game when I asked how he was doing, and she said, he probably sleeps 13 hours a day. And the reason is he he needed to recharge because he was it took that much out of him mentally to be able to fit in, you know, observe, process, and figure this whole thing out as an eighteen year old in a foreign country in a foreign language at the highest level of the sport. You know, I I have a personal connection with Patrice because when he was he was drafted, I was right there at the same hotel. And I ran into him, and I got a chance to sit down with him on uh, Sunday. And that was back in the days when the when the draft was Saturday and Sunday. And they split into two days. You didn't have the Friday night thing. 
And, you know, it's funny. People think he didn't speak English, and he did. He just had, as you know, a very, very thick accent. But I thought he was, for a 17-year-old who was a month away from turning 18, you know, from Quebec City and, and uh, you know, French being his primary language, I thought he was remarkably articulate. But what stood out to me, Ken, about him was, and I, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I knew he was going to make that Bruins team at 18, and he was going to go on to kind of have the kind of career he's had. But what I sensed was he was special just because he was so mature, he was so focused, and he ended up asking me more intelligent questions about what he thought might be awaiting him. He was more interested in what he needed to do to be prepared, and he, was ask, he wasn't asking typical teenager questions about what was fun in Boston. He was asking, well, what, you know, he was talking about retaining his, uh, you know, personal trainer and what, you know, what were some of the things he might, you know, based on my experiences of being around the Bruins, what could I expect? And that just always stuck with me. You know, he was a pro at 17 and uh, there aren't many people like him. And you said top 1% and I couldn't agree with that more. No question. I I know, I remember my wife. So it's interesting because Patrice's kids are, well, at least a year ago, were probably about the same age as mine were when he first moved to Boston. And I can still remember my wife saying one time, because he spent a lot of time in our house, as did his parents in, in those first few years. And, and uh, she looked at me and said, our kids turn out like him. We'll be dancing in the street. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Couldn't couldn't say it any better Which, than that. She was not referring to the hockey player. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. And I think anyone that's been around him, you know, whether they've covered him or run into him as a fan, I mean, the, the stories are endless, right? I've, I've watched him with a long line of fans sign every single autograph and, and, and you know, interact with fans because he just gets it, right? And, and that's yeah. got to be the great part of, of, of being in your business is being around athletes like that who understand it's not just about going out and playing the games, but they have to connect to their communities and give back. New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast will return after this message. Catch the Sacred Heart University Pioneers on the ice this season. The Pioneers Division I men and women's hockey programs will not disappoint. Season ticket packages and individual tickets are on sale now at sacredheartpioneers.com. And opening in 2023, Sacred Heart University's Martiri Family Arena, a brand new 122,000 square foot premier skating facility in Fairfield, Connecticut. Learn more at sacredheartpioneers.com. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. If you love college hockey and want an inside look at the game, get a copy of the book, Great Game, D1 College Hockey, People, Places, Perspectives. From the emotions of Frozen Fours to the atmosphere and classic venues, Bruce Haas has captured the passion that people have for the college game through interviews with players, coaches, officials, and fans. No other book captures the spirit of college hockey like this does. Great Game makes a great gift for the holidays for a college hockey fan. Score your copy of Great Game today on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Atascabooks.com, or at your local bookstore. You know, you talk about being a parent. You know, you talked about uh, about that and your experiences with the players, and you, you know that's exactly what you are. Your 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 oldest son Riley's an NHL pick with the New York Rangers, and and Jack's at Northeastern uh, in his first year, and he's eligible for the for the twenty twenty two draft. And and how has that experience been for you? You know, as 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 a as a father. You know, as a as a coach, you know that that no doubt coached them when they were younger, and and then you know with your own experience as as an advisor to to see them grow up and and and, and being involved in their development and, and where they're headed. I mean, you know, we're I am my wife. We, we are both very proud of of them uh, as kids. We 
you know, when we first kind of introduced them to hockey, I was introducing them to, to something I was passionate about that I wanted to share with them. Like I'm sure many fathers do with their boys, whether it's hockey or another sport or fishing or whatever it is that, that happens to be that passion. Uh, you know, given my line of work, hockey's kind of everywhere in our house because, you know, I'm watching games every night and, you know, games in the morning sometimes to catch up on, on what may have happened the night before that I didn't get a chance to watch at that point. So, uh, you know, we wanted to, I wanted to introduce the sport, but we also wanted to be mindful of it, that, that it, there's such a hockey influence in our household that this was something for them and, and they had to like it and they had to enjoy it. And, you know, we hoped ultimately that they would share that passion, but that they'd also learn about hard work and, and, discipline and how to work within a group and and some of the the uh, values that i that i think team sports can teach young young kids and they can take with them beyond their their athletic days and ultimately if it got them you know i guess a dream was that it would get them to a school that to a great school and we weren't thinking college we were hoping at the time maybe that was a prep school and you know we would take it year by year so uh, it, it's been uh, a great experience for me to share with them. At the same time, I'm very mindful that you know we want them to know it's got to be their dream. It's not. It's not mine. Like they can quit tomorrow. We're good. Um, so you know they've got to chase that dream. Like you know, back to to I guess the beginning of the podcast, which is it, it's okay to chase it, and it's not a failure to not achieve that your ultimate goal enjoy the process enjoy the journey and as long as you're doing that great and and uh, if at any point in time that stops for a prolonged period because again i think there is going to be ups and downs and you're not going to love every moment of it and that's part of life in general not just sports um but if at any point in time it's not you know it's they should know that at that point in time it's probably time to move on um and, and you know the other thing that had been really important to us just because my you know my wife grew up in Montreal my brother was probably the best considered the best hockey player in Canada and maybe in the world at 16 and and there was a lot of you know we had a lot of notoriety and ultimately he played one NHL game so with the Bruins right yes with the Bruins with ultimately the Bruins, drafted yeah. to the Nordiques right. and and you know played a number of years or whatever it was four years at pro hockey had had a uh, debilitating back issue that got him out of hockey, you know, by 25, I think, but, but ultimately, you know, and then she, my wife has also seen so many of these players that were that player growing up that we've represented like an Angelo Esposito who was, you know, written up in sports illustrated was a can't miss kid and was drafted 21st overall and never made the NHL. And, and, you know, back then, even more so today, Again, back to this whole thing about you're, you're you're performing on a very public stage, and when people assume you're going to make it to the to the you know to the National Hockey League and you don't, then whether you perceive it that way, there are others that are perceiving you to have failed in a very public stage. So you know we've been very kind of aware that their self esteem is not or their identity is not completely tied up in who they are as hockey players that that's just part of who they are well i had a chance to talk to riley and jack after their first practice at matthews and uh, they they talked about how excited they were to be you know playing together and, and and riley said you know because of the age difference we never had a chance to play together growing up and uh the original plan was to do that at saint sebastian's and that didn't happen so just as you know, from you and your wife as parents, you know how exciting was it to see them against Bentley and, and and to know that they are finally getting a chance to to play together for the first time. And who knows, maybe that that opportunity may continue to avail itself down the road. But uh, just uh, you know, just from a family perspective, it's it's got to be really exciting for you guys to have them both on the same team back home doing what they're doing. Yeah, we're thrilled. We're thrilled. We're thrilled for them. Not just that they play together that they you know get to go to school together and live together for uh, they're very close and for three years Riley went away to British Columbia for what would have been that first year that they could have played together but it was also a year where you know there's not a lot of kind of 
personal interaction just because the because of the distance and then the two year two following years jack was in michigan when riley was back here so you know just the opportunity to kind of live the college experience together is unique and and uh we think they're very fortunate and we're happy for them. No, no, they look, look pretty good. A little, little chemistry, although they're I, when I was watching them, they weren't we weren't around the same line. But plenty of time. I know Coach Keefe has a lot of options available to him, so we'll just see how it goes. And uh, so, speaking of college hockey, uh, I think one of the big one of the you know, one of the real reasons and you know things that people are interested in the in the business side of hockey. It's about business, right? We talk about you know we. You watch the games and all that, but you alluded to it earlier in the beginning of that, that the business side of hockey has really changed, and not only the business side of hockey, but really all professional sports. It's just you know the revenues that are able to be generated these days with the TV deals and the endorsements and all of these things are in you know, the cable and um, and just that just the so many different non traditional media cover, you know outlets and coverage now that exist. It, it has it has opened the door, and so finally, I guess with the the NCAA had this had the NIL decision uh, that came out, which seems to be a, a real sea change, and you know it was a, it was a, it was an earth shaking type of type of situation in terms of the student athletes and um, you know what has long been a situation where people have felt like they deserve to have some level of compensation given what they're doing, uh, so. Just wanted to kind of open it up to you and, and, and get your perspective on that NIL and, and, and what it means for, for student-athletes in the NCAA now and, and going forward as this thing will evolve. I, I think it's it's going to bring a, a tidal wave of change. I'm not so sure how much of that will be seen or felt in, in hockey as opposed to you know, the bigger revenue sports, certainly from a college perspective with football and basketball. Um, you know, like there, we think about it from, let's take a pro sports league, for example. Uh, you know, nowadays the, the players association typically has group licensing rights and they can market the, the athletes that say, you know, in, in settings of, three or more it could be five or more depending how they you know from one league to the other in the nhl it's three or more uh so they can go out and sell that right the the athlete can go out and sell his name and like his likeness individually they don't have rights to the league mark so if i'm a sponsor and i want to feature three players in bruins uniforms I'm either, and I want to feature, for example, another three players in Ranger uniforms. I'm either going to the Rangers and I'm going to the Bruins and I'm securing rights to their marks. I'm then going to the Players Association, securing rights to to uh, that those six, six athletes. Uh, or we could be going uh, directly to an individual athlete. So there's a lot of complexities now when you introduce this to the NCAA. Alabama football has been able to use the athlete and the brand together how do they operate on a going forward basis we, they don't have that organization right now in sport uh like they do at the at the pro level so you know there's going to be a fundamental shift in terms of how they sell rights going forward and how the athlete sells rights and you know i expect there's a business that will evolve where there's groups that come in and consult and help universities and, and athletes understand how they can coexist together, what the best way to do that is. And, and that'll be interesting to see because even to sell a group licensing, right, requires the group to agree to it. But if you've got a superstar football or basketball player and he chooses not to be part of it, then there can be, a, it, it'll be a really interesting landscape. Hockey, it's a little bit different. Uh, just because it's not at the college level, this you know <clears throat> we're not they're not playing on NBC on a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday night or ABC or or whatnot for one two the Canadian Hockey League, which is kind of the the Canadian counterpart to the NCA in terms of a development league for for aspiring NHL players, they've always had that right. So you know those guys if if they're game is significant enough and their their name and their game i guess they they've been able to do that 
uh, forever. They've never had those limitations that exist in the NCAA. Uh, and it hasn't necessarily led to significant income. Although, you know, you have the Sidney Crosby's of the world when they were coming through, maybe, you know, Connor Bernard's is certainly a very big name in Canada right now, uh, who's two years away from his draft. So I think there'll be those opportunities, but we also live in a different world where, you know, you don't have to be known because you're a hockey player. You can be known because of a presence on social media or, or other, you know, that generates a following or so on that you could then commercialize. And, and certainly with these rule changes, you're not limited anymore. So oh, and that's that's all fascinating. Like you said, I think it, it all comes down to we're going to have to see We're gonna, you know, there are going to be cases that, you know, the first athletes that that go into this will kind of determine will create maybe a chain reaction but you know as an advisor if you if you if you're advising a student athlete you know just based on what you know now what are you able to do and 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 what does it take to 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 get something done for your for your clients that are that are student athletes in the NCAA right now well I, I think there's I mean, listen you you can do an endorsement deal you could you know promote stuff online you could, you know if I think in hockey circles and call it kind of low hanging marketing type of opportunities, low hanging fruit, you know, maybe an equipment deal, uh, you know, hasn't COVID hasn't been kind to equipment manufacturers. I don't expect to see those deals very often, you know, memorabilia deals with the, you know, with the larger memorabilia companies or trading card stuff. That's all those opportunities are always going to exist as an advisor. I think there's also going to be this balance. Like who are you? Who's the athlete? what potential repercussions are there in, in terms of the dressing room you're in, you know, you're a freshman in, in college and you can get a trading card deal. Do you really want to do that? Generate, you know, 10, $15,000. How did, how does, how is it perceived within the room? How is it perceived within the larger NHL community, scouts, things of that nature? How do you, you know, th- those are all decisions that, an athlete will have to weigh with his advisor family and, and, and ultimately make those decisions if, and when those opportunities are available to them. Well, I didn't even, didn't even consider that. And that's, I mean, when you, when you talk about hockey, the team dynamic and culture is just so important. And not, that's not to say it isn't in the other sports, but those things that you just mentioned, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, again, you, you get, you get a, a, let's say, you know, a player that's extremely highly regarded, and we'll just speak in hypotheticals, not specific names here, but might be two years or next, you know, a year away from the NHL draft when he goes into college, and it's a potential really lucrative opportunity for him. But what is the perception? You know, that he's he's got to be cognizant of how that will be received as one of the youngest players on the team who's just trying to find his way and fit in and. uh uh, that's all. Those are great points. Hundred percent. So, um, what are there? Are there anything? I mean, are you hearing anything else about the way it is and the way things are going? That there could be some changes, or is there a potential for for the NCAA to potentially walk anything back, or does it look like this is this is in place and here to stay, and 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 it will now just be a matter of of the new reality and and, and athlete, student athletes and, and advisors and and the businesses figuring out how to to work within the structure and and evolve it. I, I, I don't see the NCAA walking anything back. I don't know what legal right they'll have to walk anything back because a lot of these changes have been brought about through through the courts. Um, and I think the league, the NCAA is going to be careful uh, what they do in terms of challenging existing changes for fear that it could lead to even bigger changes uh, to their model, to their business model that would you know, potentially be more damaging. Right. Don't want to open Pandora's box, you know, law of yeah. unintended consequences. <laughs> you know, certainly. Uh, well, yeah. Well, you know, you're, <laughs> this is, again, it's, it's, I was in the military. We, we use the term squishy uh, to refer to things that you can't really get your arms around and, and get a mm-hmm. hold on. And, and uh, I think it's really going to come down to, 
to individuals and, and, and people putting their heads together and, and trying to figure out what it's about. But uh, some fascinating insights on that, and I do appreciate that. Let's sure. kind of go s- switch back over to onto, the, onto the coaching side. I've had the opportunity to see you behind the bench this fall uh, with a pretty good uh, Boston Junior Eagles 16 split-season team. Um, had a nice run there in Labor Day, and I, I – particularly tipped my hat because you guys had that rough go against the Rockets in the one game and then you ran the table, turned around, and, and I think that showed a lot of character with your with your crew there to be able to bounce back and then win all the games and, and, and do that. And just how is that, uh, how's that experience going for you with those players, the, the 05s and the 06s you have on that squad? And, and, and what do you think about the New England or the, you know, the, the regional um, birth year the, for the 05s and the 06s in general? I mean, as far as our individual experience, it's been it, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I enjoy working with kids at that level where you know, kind of whether it's U fourteen or U sixteen, where they're starting to kind of turn the corner and and uh, the game is becoming more serious for them. They're starting to not just play it because they love it. You know, kind of back to my you know, my youth. Uh, playing on the outdoor rink, they're, they're now starting to say, Hey, you know, I see things in front of me. I want to go out and give my best shot to try to earn it, whether it be, you know, going to, you know, getting drafted as high as possible in the USHL as a, as a stepping stone to college or the national development program, things of that nature. Uh, so it's exciting for us to be able to work with those players and, and uh, both on their game and, and, you know, just try to lend a little bit of, my experience from, from a work perspective to them too, so that they don't, again, they kind of understand, give them some perspective so that they understand what they're dealing with. It's, they have to appreciate that it's not just the here and now that this is a longer term thing. It doesn't have have to happen in one game, one period, one shift. And they should stay focused on, on improving as a hockey player. And, and, you know, I think, when I look back at my career and, and, and I've loved everything that, that I've done here and, and, you know, it's not hard to get out of bed on a Monday morning, notwithstanding that, you know, part of my passion for the sport of hockey was competing as well. And, and I enjoy, you know, joining, being part of this group and competing uh, on weekends to, uh, to win a hockey game, to win a, to win a shift. And we talk about that a lot when we have big games that, we're not afraid of, of uh, not winning. We're excited at the opportunity to win, excited at the opportunity to go out and, and be a difference maker in a moment. Not necessarily by design, but we've now had both coaches of the Boston Junior Eagles split season 16 team on the RinkWise podcast. Paul Canada was on a few episodes ago. And how's, how's it been having Paul uh, working with you? It's great. You know, Paul and, and Neil Patterson, I have coached this group here for a few years now and, and uh, we all get along and, and have a lot of fun and, and uh, there's quite a bit of humor in practice and over emails or post-game dinners or whatnot. So we've really had a lot of fun and we've watched a group of kids that are a great group of uh, guys that fit well in the locker room. Uh, they're, you know, everybody has their own individual aspirations, but they've, they've found a great way of kind of blending it into, to the group objectives here. So we've had a lot of fun. We've had no difficulties whatsoever. And it's been, it's been very enjoyable to watch these kids progress, learn how to compete, learn how to work within a group, learn how to evolve, you know, evolve their games and understand their games as individuals too. So well, I mean, you know, we've really appreciated your time. We'll just ask one last question of you, and this is more geared toward the hockey aspect of what you're seeing, you know, just what you bring to the table as a coach to maybe help a young player. And this is really at, at any age, but, uh, you know, as players or parents are listening to this podcast and they're just trying to get as much information as they can on on, on how to achieve that dream that you talked about was so important to, to, to not give up and to, and to chase, and that is – you know, from your perspective behind the bench, what are some of the things that your more successful players are doing where you, you look at it and you say, 
yeah, we're having success because these are the things they're doing and that you would advise players to try to adopt it in terms of their habits and their preparation? It would it would go back to as a starting point the the you asked me about the qualities of of some of the star players the Bergeron's halls Latangs Marners nurses it's they they share certain qualities so we're trying to impart to to our guys how important those qualities are the, the competitiveness the inner drive the determination. A lot of guys, there's a difference between saying I really want something and understanding what's involved in going out and getting what you want. And and that, that means the personal sacrifice of, of not being able to do what, what your buddies in high school are doing or prep school and having to uh, make more sacrifices from a time perspective and missing out on things to prepare properly. And that's not easy for teenage kids. So that's certainly one piece of it. Um, you know, we're also trying to, at this age level that, you know, we're not going to do a lot in two practices a week in terms of in a split season, change how they skate or stick handle. So we're really trying to impart uh, and grow their knowledge and understanding of the game, which, you know, kind of back to Mark Savard's comments is such, so critical yet probably not as important. Probably where, if anything, there's been a regression, not a progression over years, because I, I think, you know, there's just been a shift in influence to skating and skill. And sometimes when that's done in practice and not in game context, it, it can hurt how they process. And so, you know, that's a big focus with our group. Wow. Great points. I think it all comes down to commitment, right? If you're going to do this and you're going to play at the highest levels, you have to be committed. And And I'm so glad you mentioned the sacrifices because, and, and the fact earlier when you said it has to be the player's dream, not your dream, you know, because that commitment is what's going to drive them to do those things and to give up those things. Because at the end of the day, if they could be in a place where number 37 is for the Boston Bruins, that's what they want to do. And it's... It's they can't just have a normal upbringing. So, uh, again, I thank you so much for your time. I know you have uh, some things that you must go on and 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 do and accomplish. But again, it's been great having you on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kirk. And uh, so for Kent Hughes, this is Kirk Ludicky for the New England Hockey Journal Rinkwise Podcast. Until next time, we will see you at the rink. Thanks for listening to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Follow us on Twitter at NE Hockey Journal, on Instagram and Facebook at New England Hockey Journal, and subscribe to New England Hockey Journal online at hockeyjournal.com. New England Hockey Journal's Rinkwise is a Siemens Media Podcast.